Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Scheer, first of all, what are your thoughts on the developing national security crisis with the um, arrest of an Intel director of the RCMP and an advisor to former Commissioner Bob Paulson? Well, this is very alarming, and I am very concerned at uh, what this might mean for our national security. Uh, clearly, this is someone who had access to very sensitive information uh, and was uh, compromised. So this is uh, something that uh, any prime minister needs to take very seriously and make sure that there are proper oversight mechanisms in place. Uh, and, uh, and as prime minister, I will certainly uh, want to conduct a review of how this was uh, allowed to happen and how long it was happening for and what types of national uh, security issues might have been passed on to other countries. Yeah, there's a great deal of concern about what our allies will now have to do and whether uh, programs of our own have been compromised to the point that they won't be able to go forward. We'll, we'll have to see, of course, what develops over the days and weeks and months to come. Let me get to the SNC-Lavalin issue. Jody Wilson-Raybolt and uh, the RCMP meeting with Ms. Wilson-Raybolt, yet the Prime Minister won't lift cabinet confidentiality in this case and allow Jody Wilson-Raybolt to speak freely. Is this an issue that you think is resonating with Canadian voters? And what would you do if you were Mr. Trudeau? Well, uh, I do believe it is resonating with Canadians because this is a question of trust. And Canadians now know that they just can't trust Justin Trudeau. They can't believe him. Uh, in the, uh, up until this SNC-Lavalin affair, we were pointing out broken promises. Uh, but now we can add to that uh, lies. We can add to the fact that uh, Justin Trudeau has looked Canadians in the eye and said things that he knew were false. He has lied. He's lied about his involvement. He's lied about whether or not Jody Wilson-Raybould came to him in the first place. And now he's lying about lifting cabinet confidences. He has the power to do it. Other prime ministers have done it. Uh, for other investigations. And if I were Justin Trudeau right now, I would say, let's just let everything come out in the open. If he truly has nothing to hide, if he doesn't believe he broke the law, if he doesn't believe he's guilty of obstruction of justice, then he should just allow the RCMP to investigate fully and hand everything over to them. There's really no other option for him. Or I think that'll become increasingly clear as we get closer to the 21st of October. Now, you're making commitments and promises to Canadian voters. Mr. Trudeau has run up billions of dollars in commitments, most of them, I think, in liberal writings. Mr. Singh and Ms. May are adding their own entries to the promises and commitments list. And yet Ipsos polling released last week, and we talked to them about it uh, last week and uh, earlier today, shows 61% of Canadians don't believe politicians or political parties have the best interests of the average person at heart. Uh, 67% believe the economy is rigged to benefit the elites. Obviously, a significant majority of Canadians don't believe what political leaders are telling them. How do you deal with that? Well, we, we deal with that by showing Canadians exactly how we're going to do what we're promising. 
so far, I've made uh, uh, several commitments that are very focused on helping individuals get ahead. Uh, Canadians are right to feel like the system is rigged for the elite or well-connected when they see a prime minister who literally has an open line between uh, a company facing corruption charges, when they see uh, Justin Trudeau give $12 million to a massive corporation like Loblaws. So our policies are geared right directly into the pocketbooks of Canadians leaving more money in their pockets so they can get ahead. We're going to cancel the carbon tax. We're going to take the GST and HST off of home energy bills. And I announced yesterday that we are going to make public transit tax uh, tax credits back available for commuters. So uh, public transit tax uh, monthly passes will be eligible for a tax credit. And in the weeks ahead, we'll be unveiling new policies about how we're going to leave more money in the pockets of Canadians so they can get ahead and at the same time show exactly how we're going to pay for it so Canadians can have confidence that we're actually going to do what we're saying. Okay, if you fail to, to, to deliver on these commitments, and that's what people are concerned about, not just about you, but about all the political parties. Should you fail to deliver on these commitments, what's the downside for you? Well, you know, I I think when you look back at Conservative governments, we have a great track record on delivering the vast majority of our promises. I think Canadians understand that, you know, the, the governments can... Uh, should implement what they promise. If, if I vote for someone based on the fact that I'm, accept, uh, I'm expecting to get what they're offering in a platform, uh, then the government has an obligation to do it. And I think that's why so many people were disappointed in Trudeau uh, completely backing away from his promises on electoral reform. Uh, he said he would cut taxes for the middle class. Middle class Canadians are now paying more. He had a very solemn promise. Remember, he said he's being as honest as he could be. Uh, and he promised that Canada would get back to balanced budgets in 2019. So if that's as honest as he could be, we now know he's broken that promise. We know he's not honest. Uh, but what I am putting forward are very practical measures, fully cost by the parliamentary budget officer. They will be in our fiscal framework. We will accomplish them uh, in our first term in office. Let's talk about political parties, including yours, having to either question, apologize, and or drop approved candidates for comments they made on social media or other venues. The Liberals have dropped a candidate in Montreal who's a former imam for anti-Semitic statements, a development you've spoken to nationally, but your party is being challenged for comments made by two Ontario candidates, Gada Malek and uh, Arpan Kano. Speak to that, please. What are, what are a political party's responsibilities? Sure. Well, for us, we, we recognize that in this day and age when uh, when comments can be made on social media uh, that, uh, the, the, that are there now pretty much forever, uh, that individuals have a, an obligation to disclose what they may have said in the past. Uh, and we look at exactly the context and the nature and the degree and the, and the openness that uh, candidates have uh, brought those forward with. Um, when people take responsibility for what they might have said, they, they regret it if they are sincere in their apologies. I think people can accept that. Uh, and so that's what we've done. You know, where these things have uh, been brought up, we've, we've, uh, you know, are those candidates in question have addressed it full on. Unlike Justin Trudeau, who has refused to comment or denounce the anti-Semitic comments of his candidates. But I, I want to, I believe the Liberals are going to focus the next 37 or so days precisely on this, reaching into the past to, to, to dig up these types of things, to distract from the issues that Canadians are focused on. And uh, yes, it's important that we have candidates and members of Parliament who are respectful in their language and do not use inflammatory or uh, insulting comments. But this is clearly a political tool now that the Liberals are using. It's not really to improve or elevate the tone of debate. It's literally just putting them out day after day so that we're not talking about SNC, we're not talking about deficits. And I predict that they're going to continue to do that. I'm going to continue to hold my candidates to a very high 
standard while at the same time putting forward concrete proposals to help Canadians get ahead. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on all of this with all the parties as we go forward toward the 21st of October. Let's talk about Canada's border with the United States, about people who directly head for non-structured entry into this country. Roxham Road in Quebec has become famous. And they're greeted by RCMP officers who make a refugee claim under that circumstance. Not the people, not the RCMP officers do, but the people do make the, the refugee claim under that circumstance when they had every opportunity. And according to the Safe Third Country Agreement, Canada signed with the United States, had the responsibility to claim refugee status in the United States. Will you change the current reality at the border if you become prime minister? Absolutely. It is essential that Canadians have confidence in their immigration system, and we are a welcoming and generous nation. We we have a long history, a proud history of welcoming people from uh, war-torn places, from famine-stricken places, and I think that's I think that's something all Canadians are proud of. Uh, all we ask is that people come through the front door and that they come through uh, the, the system properly. And someone crossing into Canada from upstate New York has already reached a point where they are not fleeing civil war, they are not fleeing those natural disasters. So it, the whole point of those agreements that we have signed with our with other countries and, and the basis of our refugee policy is that uh, people are supposed to make the claim in the first safe country that they arrive in. Uh, someone coming in from upstate New York is not facing the same type of danger that someone in a refugee camp in Africa is facing. Our system should prioritize people who are facing real danger and real persecution. And uh, and I, as, as Prime Minister, I will, I will absolutely address the issue with people coming in uh, at, uh, at unofficial border crossings. I've already gone over the allotted time, so I'll just ask you one more question. What happens... With pipelines, with a sheer government, what happens if you're the prime minister of this country? What happens to Energy East? What will you do? Well, I believe in getting Canada off of foreign oil, and pipelines are the safest way to transport our energy. We have Eastern Canadian markets that are being filled with uh, oil and gas coming from Donald Trump's America, uh, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia. I, I believe in energy independence, and I believe that pipelines are the best way to do that. We used to live in a country where the private sector built pipe, pipelines because they had confidence in getting projects built. That has all been destroyed under this Liberal government. I will not only get pipelines built in the short term, but I'm also talking about an energy corridor where a, a federal government can take care of all the regulatory approvals, the First Nations consultation, the environmental regu uh, regulatory process up front, so that investors can have confidence we can get these big projects built again. Okay, well, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks, Roy. Always, uh, always great to be on the show. Now, on the issue of SNC and uh, the Prime Minister of Canada deciding or telling everyone that he doesn't have the right to, um, to make the decision to remove or lift cabinet confidence and allow Jody Wilson-Raybould to share her truth with the rest of the country. Let's talk about that. Joining me is Professor Donald Savoy, Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance at the University of Moncton. He's the author of Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. It publishes a week from today. And one of the areas the professor explores in Democracy in Canada is the fact that Canada has government by cabinet, not government directed by an individual. Big difference. Professor Savoy, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me. So government by cabinet versus government directed by an individual, does that mean government by cabinet, as Canada has, is more cumbersome or has more checks and balances? Or a bit of both? 
Well, it means that we used to have cabinet government. I argued that under Mike Pearson, under Prime Minister Pearson, there was cabinet government. It's a bit iffy since. Uh, we seem to have uh, prime ministerial government. Um, prime ministers decide the scope of what the, what the government does. Cabinet is not always present at key decisions. For example, two wars in Afghanistan, both governments, different parties, um, the cabinet was simply informed. It wasn't part of the process. Indeed, in both cases, the Minister of Defence, Minister of Foreign Affairs, weren't uh, were, were also not part of the process. They were simply informed, and uh, making the case that uh, that doesn't look at, or, or shape like cabinet government. It looks like prime ministerial government, and I think that's what we have now at the moment. So, as far as the SNC Lavalin issue is concerned, with Mr. Trudeau saying it's the clerk of the Privy Council who is entirely responsible for making the decision on lifting cabinet confidence as far as permitting members of the cabinet speaking to the RCMP or the ethics commissioner is concerned. Is he correct? Well, if he said that, he is not correct. Uh, the clerk of the Privy Council since 1957 is, is the custodian, uh, but it is not for him uh, to waive cabinet confidences. It's for the prime minister and cabinet. In fact, formally, it's a government council. And so the prime minister can say, we will make this available. The clerk is just a custodian. And the reason we have that is that in 57, was when there was a change of government, when Diefenbaker took over from Louis Saint-Denis, they had to make a decision whether the incoming government had access to cabinet documents. And we looked to Britain. We, we did the same thing as they do in Great Britain, and we turned it over to the clerk to, uh, to be the custodian of cabinet documents. But that's not to say that it's for him to... Uh, to waive it, it's, it's for the Prime Minister. It is the Prime Minister's call. It's not the clerk's call. The role of the clerk is just as custodian when there's a change of government. And we did have that situation, did we not, with Stephen Harper, who, who lifted cabinet confidence in the Senator Mike Duffy case? Well, we've had, we've had some cases in the past, of course. Under, uh, uh, under the Gomery Commission, uh, it was lifted. Right. Uh, so it can be done. It, it, you know, what the point I'm making is that it's not for the clerk to make it, it's for the Prime Minister. So, so either he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand, or he's being disingenuous about it. Well, I, I, if you're telling me that he said he didn't have the right to, uh, the, to uh, the what the prime minister said was there's one person who makes the decision, and that's the clerk. That's wrong. I can tell you with certainty that's wrong. <laughs> the, what uh, the, the clerk is the custodian. He he has no right. He, of course, no clerk to be become no career public servant. Mm-hmm. would want to create a precedent and say, I'm going to uh, make available these cabinet documents. Imagine what it would mean, uh, uh, because in future, every clerk could, un- could, could undo cabinet documents. And that is a fundamental requirement of our, uh, of our system of government. So no, it's not, it's not the clerk. The clerk is merely the custodian when there's a change of government. Uh, it is the prime minister's call, clearly. No question about that. Okay. Professor, I look forward to speaking with you in detail about your book next uh, next Saturday on this program. But the book is titled Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. Where is the disintegration taking place? And is the SNC-Lavalin issue an example of potentially of disintegration? Uh, the answer to that is yes, of course. Uh, it is telling a minister who is ultimately responsible for a file move over. We have a political problem uh, in Montreal that we would like to deal with. And what does that mean to our country, to the well-being of our country? Well, it means a lot. I, I make the case that Parliament is the central uh, central form 
or arena in this country that unites all communities. We all, it doesn't matter, big, large communities that have a member of parliament goes to the House of Commons and speaks on behalf of the interests of that community. That is central. There's no other institution in Canada that can do that, that's allowed to do that, that have the legal basis to do that. And so if we're not careful in, in making sure that parliament is allowed to play its role, we have a problem. And I'm making the case in the book that Parliament doesn't hold the government account. And I'm not the only one making that case, by the way. It's made by a lot of MPs on both sides of the house. I mean, we've had oodles of reports from MPs saying this is not working. Um, and so Parliament is there on the outside looking in. I think we have to we have to figure a way to find a way to make Parliament far far more relevant in the lives of Canadians and in the in the life uh, of the government to hold it take out. There was a poll released by Ipsos uh, to Global News last week in which 52% of Canadians said they believe society is broken. 61% said they don't believe the political parties traditionally and political leaders have the best interests of the ordinary voter in mind. And 67% said they believe that uh, the fix is in, as it were, as far as the economy is concerned, that it's uh, really designed to benefit the elites. What, what, what? What I'm getting out of this poll is, and many of us are, is that there is an issue with credibility among Canadians, credibility of our government, and perhaps it extends into the way we're governed. And uh, what, is, what, is that, what does that poll suggest to you? The same thing? Yes, absolutely, Roy. And I'm glad you brought it up because a few days ago I got a call from a, a former member of parliament and who is now a business person from Toronto. He called me because he saw the review by John Robinson in the National Post, he called me and he said, we had a good chat. And he said, you know, uh, I talked to a lot of CEOs. Uh, CEOs do not know the names of the members of parliament. They don't know their MPs. But every CEO knows the name of his lobbyists. And so CEOs and large businesses can afford a lobbyist. But you already, you know, Canadian, the only lobbyist they have is their member of parliament. They have no one else. And so it, it, it is absolutely critical that the MP can speak on behalf uh, of the people that he represents or she represents. And that's the whole point. And I think we have to rediscover that magic. Professor Savoie, thank you so much for the time today. And I really look forward to speaking with you in more detail about the, the book a week from today. Thank you very much, Roy. All the best. Professor Donald Savoie from uh, the University of Moncton. Canadian Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance, and he's considered a true authority on uh, governance and the way that governance is conducted now and has been historically in this country. When we come back, the RCMP Intel, or a RCMP Intel director, charged in a major case, was the top advisor to former RCMP head Bob Paulson and... Um, the arrest on Thursday of Cameron Ortiz, or Ortiz, uh, has really repercussions in this country, most definitely, and beyond, because our allies are involved. And it was the Americans who made uh, Canada aware of Ortiz. When we come back, Tom Quiggan, primarily, uh, primary, I keep saying primarily, primary com- contributor to the Quiggan Report, a podcast based on issues of free speech and national security. He also worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, and the UN. Let's get started on the issue of the election. And uh, joining us is the Vice President of Ipsos Public Research and uh, Sean Simpson. And we've talked to Sean on many an occasion 
And we just sort of gradually, Sean, we were working our way up to, over the last year, yeah, election's coming, what, how are people feeling? A couple of months later, election's coming, how are people feeling? And there'd be some variances, but generally there was this, there was this sense of frustration. And, and your poll last weekend told the story. 52% think society's broken. 61% say politicians and political parties, traditional ones, don't care about me or don't care about voters. And 67% think the economy's rigged. So that pretty much tells the story. How do those numbers, how will those numbers feed into how people respond to this election campaign? Well, it's not a good starting point for the, uh, for the incumbent liberals. Um, but uh, it's only of major consequence to them if people feel that the other political parties uh, deliver them from that feeling uh, or are a solution. And I think one of the things I'm, I'm coming to understand uh, as I'm looking at public opinion polling over the last uh, you know, six months or so since SNC-Lavalin is that I think Canadians in some way want to take out their frustration and maybe punish uh, the incumbent Liberal government but they don't know how to do it or where to go because they're not thrilled with, with any of the other options they have on the table at the moment. Isn't that interesting? So I, I, want, to, I, want, to, I want to make you pay for it, but what, how, am I go- how will I do that? Exactly, exactly. And I, I think, you know, Ontario recently had an experiment with that. <laughs> you know, they, they wanted to, to, to make the Liberals, uh, the McGuinty uh, and, and, and win Liberals pay, uh, you know, for some of their transgressions over the previous 15 years that they were that they were in power. I, and, and, and they did, you know, sending Rob Ford uh, to, um, uh, to to Queen's Park. And, and now, of course, uh, approval ratings are, 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 are low uh, in Ontario for the premier. Uh, and people may be regretting that move. So I think there, there may be some uh, folks out there who, as I said, want to punish the federal liberals for the SNC-Lavalin uh, affair. But, uh, you know, there's no clear, clear way in their mind of, of doing that because Jagmeet Singh isn't resonating. People are a little bit unsure of, of sheer. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth May probably won't form government. So is, is that a wasted vote, uh, perhaps? You know, it's interesting you talk about the Ontario situation. Uh, I mean, McGinty and, uh, and, and Wynne needed to feel the wrath of the voters because they, they had a $313 billion uh, debt, the, the world's largest subnational uh, d- debt that, that the province of Ontario was ca- carrying. So they needed, to be, they needed to be punished. And people, I think people, you know better than I, but people reach a breaking point, don't they, where it's like, okay, I've had enough and I'm going to do something about it. Or that old uh, movie network, I'm, I'm, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, after having won so many consecutive majority governments, uh, inertia as much as anything else uh, likely uh, propelled the, uh, the progressive conservatives uh, in, into power. You know, here we are in a situation federally where we've only had one term of, of liberal governments, and it was, it was consecutive terms for conservatives um, uh, prior to that. So one would think that the liberals would likely be reelected again, just on, on inertia. It's only been four years. But SNC-Lavalin uh, is, is the wild card in all of this. And, and it, you're right that we're continuing to hear about it in the news, but are we learning anything new? I, and, and I, I have a hunch I, we will before the, uh, before the day of the vote. I really oh, don't. I don't uh, think he can keep the lid tamped down forever. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that the uh, the conservatives have a couple uh, cards up up their sleeve, uh, but you know, uh, all, all we're hearing so far is that uh, you know Trudeau has, has tried to do this. We know what his motives are, and we know that he you know tried to to to, to cover it up. Um, 
but I think people kind of expected or thought that that is what was going on in the first place. So I don't think that it's necessarily going to start the campaign off for the Liberals with a major deficit to overcome. What we're seeing is actually a tightening in the race of the last month. So what are you seeing? And by the way, it's not, I mean, it's not just SNC-Lavalin. Trudeau has managed to, to really foul things up for himself in the four years he's, he's, he's governed. He's made so many mistakes. Uh, you know, and budgets don't balance themselves, and he's just caused issues for himself. He stumbled over his own his own chicanes that he's put in his own way. Well, certainly, uh, when he came to, to to office, approval ratings were in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, and, what are they uh, now? In the, well, in, in the in the thirties, the, the high thirties. So that that is a, a significant change That's huge. in a relatively short period of time, yeah. about, about three years or so. Um, but you know, the, his essence, Lavalin move, it seems to be playing well in the province of of, of Quebec, and uh, he knows as well as anybody that if the Liberals are going to pick up seats. Uh, then that's pretty well the only place they're going to be able to do it because the NDP are going to be uh, absolutely decimated in, in, in the province in this election. That's, that's what is likely to happen. Um, there's really no other places for the Liberals to be gaining seats. They already have all of them in Atlantic Canada, so they'll lose some there. They'll likely lose some in the 905. They'll likely lose some in British Columbia, particularly if the Green Party is so strong. Yeah. Quebec is the only place where they can gain, and I think that's why he's so firm and adamant in his position on the snc Lavalin issue. So would you say, Sean, I have to take a break here for a second. Can you stay with us a few minutes longer? Yep, sure, okay. no problem. Would you say that uh, when it comes to the Conservatives, and the Liberals, uh, just setting aside the NDP and the Greens for a moment, and and really, it, it eventually it translates into the leader, doesn't it? I, I mean, hopefully, you know who your candidate is in your in your in your own writing, but eventually, the 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 camera stops on the face of the leader. Uh, would you say that people the, the race is extremely tight between Trudeau and Scheer? Uh, is anybody leading? Does anybody have momentum? Yeah, it, it, it's really tight. Uh, I think in our most recent poll, when we asked who would make the best prime minister, it was it was really, uh, really close between uh, both Scheer and, and Trudeau. So at the end of the day, you, you kind of go with the guy you know or the one the one you don't know. And, and people haven't quite made up their minds as to which way uh, their, their vote will be influenced. So we, we may not know. I mean, it was just three or four days, if I remember correctly, in 2015, even three days, two days before the vote on the, what was it, the 15th of October? I don't remember what the date was. But the it was still so tight a couple of days before the vote that there were still questions about who was going to win. And this campaign's going to matter. I mean, people always ask me, Sean, do campaigns matter? Uh, well, if we're starting a campaign at a virtual tie, yeah. then it has to matter because somebody's going to win at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, because of that, and, and you know, there's quite a bit of uncertainty, both I think among politicians, the general population, and pollsters, about what's going to happen. There are too many wild cards, and, yeah. and the race is too tight at this well, point. Uh, I have so to really take a, know what's going to happen. I have to take a break here, then I want to talk to you some more. But your poll last week, and it really just, uh, it, it, it was like taking, I don't know, I'm not a good cook. I, I buy something when the picture looks good on the box. That's what I buy, and I put it in the microwave. But I think they're called ladles, those things you stir in a pot. Is that what they're called? Yep. Ladles? Yep. Okay. So you, that poll was like the ladle that really stirred the goulash last week for me. It just showed the level of absolute public frustration with everything. And frustration is a motivating factor, and yeah. that's why we know that uh, Tories 
generally get a ballot box bonus because they're filled with more angry people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hold on, Sean. We're going to come back with Sean Simpson. Good guy. Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. And we'll talk to Sean about a couple of issues that uh, are on the table. And then we'll talk to you at uh, 800-263-2428, 1-800-263-2428. If you're really enthusiastic about getting on on the air, want to share your thoughts, call in now. We'll put you on hold. You won't miss a thing. You'll hear everything that's being said, and then we'll get to you first. Uh, But the question I'm going to be asking is, is, uh, if I I can find it, I'll know what I'm going to ask you. The question is going to be, have you decided, essentially, are you a decided voter? Are you undecided? Or are there people who have decided, frankly, not to vote? Are you a decided voter, an undecided voter? Or have you decided not to vote? 800-263-2428 is the number you can wait. Uh, You can grab a line, reserve it for yourself, and we'll get to you really quickly when we start taking calls. More with Sean Simpson when we come back. Jack sends an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. If Canadians are confused about who to elect in place of the Liberals, they should vote for Maxime Bernier, PPC. He has a very conservative platform that would not hurt anybody, and his election would teach the other political parties a lesson. Sean Simpson is my guest, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. We're talking about the electorate. By the way, um, Sean, you know, I said I'd open the phone lines early. People mm-hmm. wanted to wait uh, and, and to, to express their opinions. All the phone lines are jammed. <laughs> that, so that speaks to the level of interest in this election. Now, what about the person who says Maxime Bernier did? Where do they show up? Where does PPC show up? Yeah, well, PBC is going to be a bit of a thorn in the side of the Conservatives, right? Because uh, it, it's not likely that you're considering either the NDP or the PPC, right? They're on the opposite ends of the, of the spectrum. Um, so I think Andrew Shear has to be a, a little bit worried about uh, Bernier. Um, we're not uh, seeing them resonate in the polls very much, uh, maybe 2% of the vote uh, at this particular point in time. Okay. But, you know, if, if the PPC is a thorn in the side of the Conservatives, then the Green Party is uh, like an entire bush in the side of the of the Liberals, uh, because uh, there, there are three parties on the left uh, splitting the progressive vote, uh, and uh, the Green Party momentum uh, really um, hurts the Liberals uh, because uh, of that vote splitting. Uh, the same thing isn't happening to the same extent on the right. Now, uh, Jack Mead Singh also performed better than many people thought he would in that debate. Yeah, it, as far as you know, as far as his presentation and his body language was concerned, certainly if he didn't like the message, that's one thing. But I heard people say, yeah, he kind of impressed me with the way he handled himself. Yeah, and, and debates are all about expectations, uh, uh, right. uh, how people perform based on how you think they're going to perform. Yeah. And uh, maybe some people will be looking at, at Singh. I mean, it's his first sort of uh, moral victory in, 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 in quite some time. Uh, so I think he has to be happy about that. But it's really early in the campaign, and I think the only people who are really paying close attention to that debate are the are the wonks like you and me. Um, I, I think most people will be waiting uh, for for the big consortium debates in the beginning of October. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine said I was watching a rerun of Frazier on PVR while the debate was <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That tells you the story. That tells the story. Is this country really divided on issues which matter, divided, I mean like Quebec versus the rest of Canada, Ontario versus the Prairies, BC with its own view of the country and Atlantic Canada feeling somehow left out or something similar. Are we regionally um, a smorgasbord? 
Yeah, well, the, the first one uh, is is first issue is healthcare, and, and almost everybody you know says that that's a big issue for them. Um, the other issues such as as taxation, sure, they resonate a little bit more in you know Alberta or Ontario than they than they might in 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 a, in a place like uh, like Quebec. Um, I, I know we're hearing that immigration is a, is a is an issue. It's not the top five, but it seems to be getting a lot of play. I think because of Maxime Bernier, those issues seem to be a little bit more pronounced. Um, in Quebec, and, and, and it's not just a Quebec versus the rest of Canada, but probably more of an urban-rural split, okay. because if you're exposed to more multiculturalism, then it, it, it's less of an issue than, than if you're in, in more rural areas where the population is a bit more um, uh, homogenous. Um, but, you know, for most people, it's, it's affordability, you know, being able to, 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 to afford life in their housing and pay their taxes and, and, and raise their families. Yeah, and yeah. I think those are, those are issues that, that all Canadians worry about if it, it, they're not localized. Well, you know, we talked about a poll uh, that showed the significant percentage, I think maybe the, was it the majority of people who said they were 200 bucks away from bankruptcy. Yes, that's uh, an Ipsos poll for, for MNP. Um, and it, and uh, it shows how much uh, uh, or how little wiggle room that, that people have at the end of the month. Uh, um, you know, almost half have less than two hundred dollars left to to play with, and that includes uh, you know their, their their savings and investments. So right. um, we know that affordability is a is a huge issue for for Canadians. And when we used to talk about affordability, it was a lot just you know gas prices and food prices but now of course because of crazy real estate uh it, you know uh, just being able to afford a place to live uh is is a concern that, uh, that many people have yeah. and if not for they themselves it, it's certainly a concern for their uh, their children you know how are young people going to be able to buy a home in the in the gta or vancouver sean thank you for the time always good talking to you appreciate it in my pleasure bye-bye sean simpson vice president of ipsos public affairs Okay, so 1-800-263-2428. We've had a couple of lines free up, so 800-263-2428. And uh, here we go. Are you a decided voter? Have you decided which party you're going to vote for or whom you will vote for? Are you still undecided? Are you still making up your mind about who's going to get your vote? And are there people, and I suspect it'll probably be somewhere between, probably around 37 or 38 percent of the population of the eligible voters won't bother. Well, if the trend continues in uh, the way it's been going, it could be one of those elections where there's a big number that go out. But if it's the way it's been, Maybe 37, 38% of the popular, of the, of the eligible voters won't bother. 800-263-2428 is the number. Are you a decided voter? Have you decided who's going to get your vote? Who is going to get your vote? Are you still undecided? Why? And if you're somebody who's decided not to vote, give me a call, 800-263-2428. And why have you made that decision? We'll come right back. A lot of talk, a lot of opinions, a lot of voiced opinions on the hiring of Shane Gillis by Saturday Night Live. So this um, podcast video, which was uh, is about a year old, appeared Thursday all over social media, and that was right after SNL announced that they'd hired Gillis. And uh, so there's controversial, and he's, he's uh, accused of... Uh, having a history of racist and homophobic remarks. And uh, there are people calling for his being fired from SNL before the season even begins. And uh, 
the most recent information that I have is that SNL and the uh, the producers haven't made any decision on that, or at least not saying anything. So what's that about, and where are the boundaries as far as comedy is concerned? Interesting questions. Does, does Gillis have to go, yes or no? And then there's the story of Felicity Huffman, whose uh, CV includes an Academy Award nomination. She's the former star of Desperate Housewives and uh, an imprisoned, imprisoned offender. She's going to spend 14 days in jail, the first person to be sentenced in a wide-ranging U.S. college admissions cheating scandal, and she received that 14-day prison sentence after pleading guilty to paying to rig her daughter's entrance exam. Huffman got off more easily than federal prosecutors wanted. A lot of the, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some, well, could be a lot, uh, some at the very least influential and wealthy parents want to get their kids into some of the most prestigious universities and colleges, and so they've been shoveling money under the table, and it's been accomplished. Robert Thompson is the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture, University of Syracuse professor, perhaps the leading expert in pop culture, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Bob, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you again, too. So what do we make, first of all, of the, of the Shane Gillis story? Is this, a, is this a moving target? Does he have to go? Well, it's a, this. Uh, for one thing, I am really surprised. Uh, you, you know, you just can't get a position on Saturday Night Live. They send out uh, people to watch you perform. They see that you're on the radar. Uh, by the time you get a job at Saturday Night Live, uh, you've been seen by an awful lot of people. And it's not like these things that um, he's been saying, and they are pretty awful things. Uh, it's not like they weren't available. Uh, it's not like they were hidden in some uh, kind of place. And I find it hard to believe that the people at Saturday Night Live made this hire and were not aware of uh, some of the stuff he said. And it's not just his um, uh, uh, things against uh, uh, Chinese people, which was because there's a Chinese-American also in the new cast uh, has been being emphasized. But he says a lot of really, really nasty and offensive things about other uh, uh, people as well. So either Saturday Night Live was completely clueless or oblivious, which I think may be the case, or they think that somehow this kind of thing will put some balance to the cast. But I can't imagine, if I were Lorne Michaels, and heaven knows I'm not, or not anything close to it, I, I don't see how he can possibly introduce this guy in the debut episode of this season. You think they're just waiting to see? Well, it's not much longer to wait, do they? But uh, they're waiting, they've been waiting to see what, just how intense the response and reaction is going to be. And whether it's going to go away. Or whether it's going do to you go remember away. Trevor Noah, who is now considered one of the critically acclaimed, beloved uh, uh, hosts of The Daily Show that took over from uh, uh, Jon Stewart? Right. He had a little bit of this trouble, not quite as extensive as we're seeing with Shane Gillis, but uh, uh, he had make, made some remarks on uh, uh, Twitter that were perceived as, and I think correctly perceived as, uh, uh, anti-Semitic. And um, uh, but that that kind of went away, and he's uh, you know now considered an upstanding uh, 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 part of late night uh, politics and his book and all the rest of it. However, this Shane Gillis thing doesn't seem to be uh, uh, going away, and the very fact that Saturday Night Live last time I checked has not responded at all to this. And I have to think if they had any good response, they would have made it already. Mm -hmm. So. 
I'll be surprised if he makes it to the uh, uh, cast, which will make him the uh, the shortest ever cast member of Saturday Night Live uh, with an exact number of zero episodes. Huh. Sounds like a certain wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders. Yeah, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> who we'll be talking story. about? Who we're talking about tomorrow? Who's now just been accused of rape and will be probably starting for the New England Patriots tomorrow? But you know, Bob, when it comes to the issue of comedy, I know I'm going to hear from people. I haven't heard what Gillis said, by the way. I haven't heard the podcast, so I don't know what he said. Well, you can't in most cases. A lot of it has been has been scrubbed now, but okay. uh, uh, you can read transcripts of uh, uh, the stuff, and it's it's it's. It's pretty alarming. So if somebody says, hey, look, it's uh, it, it, comedy, comedians have to be allowed to be social commentators and say whatever they wish to say, this is beyond, way beyond those bounds, I take it. Well, I, I agree that you've got to give a lot of slack to uh, comedians. The whole point is they're trying to uh, define these boundaries, and in many cases they're trying to expose and critique bad things by satirizing and parodying them and burlesquing them and all the rest of it. Matter of fact, uh, uh, Gillis, um, I think it was Thursday night uh, at a uh, uh, comedy thing, went up and said, oh, when he said these things, he was playing a character. And, of course, we've seen lots of brilliant comedy that have, uh, that have said horrible things in character. Archie Bunker on All in the Family is a perfect example. In the 1960s. He, uh, uh, 70, that debuted in uh, January of 71 and went to 78. Was it 71? Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, and uh, he was considered a, um, uh, you know, that was considered great social commentary, and everybody knew that what he was saying was satire. But, in fact, everybody didn't know. There were people who had Archie Bunker for president uh, bumper stickers on for the 72 election, and they weren't taking what Archie said as satire. They were taking it as seriously. So this is very complicated. Com- comedians do need to be able to do all this stuff. But, you know, I think it's that old, I hate to bring up that old cliche of, you know, what is obscenity or pornography. I know it when I see it. Um, when I look at everything that's been uh, printed, and, and this story broke for me when it broke for everybody else, when I look at everything that's been written about what he's said in these podcasts and everything, if I were Lorne Michaels, the head of Saturday Night Live, I would say, yes, we have to understand that parody and burlesque and all these things, comedians need, uh, need to be able to say things um, that might uh, be offensive. But there is always this place where you think, however, and I think if I were Lauren Michaels, I would say that this guy is going to be really hard to put on Saturday Night Live because it's really hard to interpret that stuff as simply sophisticated comedy. Remember when Michael Richards pulled this? Yes. Uh, the guy who played Kramer yes, on Seinfeld? Yes, yes, yes. He got caught in one of the early vi- viral videos going off on this incredibly racist uh, um, uh, rant. He was using the N-word over and over and over again. And he tried briefly to pull that whole thing that, oh, I was just doing a, you know, a, a, a parody on how that language is used. Nobody bought it. I don't think anybody should have bought it. And I kind of think we may be in a similar situation here. Okay. Now, in the two minutes we have left, Felicity Huffman, Academy Award nominee, former star of Desperate Housewives, going to do 14 days in prison for... <laughs> For pleading guilty to paying to rig her daughter's entrance exam, she got off more easily than federal prosecutors wanted. There are 51 more people who are charged right alongside her. Some context, please, Bob. 
Well, uh, one quick bit of context. A couple of hours ago, TMZ uh, reported that the place she's going uh, gives you one roll of toilet paper every two weeks. She's only going to be in two weeks, so she's going to have to make that one roll last for her whole uh, stay. I, I don't know. I, I totally agree with this idea that uh, privileged people don't get punished uh, nearly as much as other people. At the same time, I'm not sure putting Felicity Hoffman behind uh, Hoffman behind bars for uh, uh, five years is going to be to anybody's benefit. If if justice were really served, you would punish people in ways that they actually felt the punishment. And I think the best way to do that to a person like her would be to fine her an enormous amount of money, uh, an amount of money that she would actually feel, and uh, direct that to the very not privileged people who can't afford to pay to put their kids through uh, um, through college, much less bribe people to get them into good college. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know there are millions of people who are nodding their heads in absolute agreement with with what you're saying right across North America, not that we necessarily have all of North America listening to us, well, most, maybe most, but not all. But, Roy but Green, I think everybody listens to you. <laughs> you, you I like, I really like, I really enjoy talking to you, Bob. Thank you very much. I agree that uh, that lesson has to be taught and a message has to be received. You can't just bribe your way or bribe your kid's way into university or college, and it really devalues your kid too. Bob, thank yeah, you. 14 days and 250 days. days of service and $30,000 is not going to be felt very much. No, me. no. Always great talking to you, my friend. Thank you so much for the time, Bob. Pleasure as always. So much mine. Thank you. Take care. Robert Thompson, professor at Syracuse University, the founder of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture. He really is more than likely North America's premier expert on pop culture. When we come back... We'll talk to Catherine Swift about the pricey real estate means, well, hang on. This has to do with, it has to do with the promise that was made by the Liberal Party in the federal election. Just stick around. We'll get at it. Back with the beauties, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, Catherine Swift, beauties in the beast election segment. Uh, we have six minutes here. It goes by fast, eh? Um, just what, what do you guys want? What do you guys want to get at? Well, I I just like to say that I guess I'm I'm disappointed, although I guess not shocked, in the short memories of the electorate. And granted, this isn't unique to Canada, but I I back in the mid '90s, Canada almost hit the debt wall, which would have been an absolute fiasco. Uh, thankfully, at the time, the government of the day, and it was Cretchen and Paul Martin, as you may recall, uh, dealt with it. Now, granted, you can quibble with how they dealt with it, and, and I did at the time. <laughs> that being said, we pulled ourselves away from the brink. We're, we're there again. We're there again now, folks. And we're also very likely facing recession within the next year to 18 months. And yet, our politicians, and I include all of them here to varying degrees, including conservatives, are buying us once again with our own money when we're already in debt up to our eyeballs. Why doesn't the message we need to have a stable fiscal situation, and you mentioned Ontario earlier, Roy, federally almost $30 billion every year is going just to interest on the debt. That's a lot of dough we could be spending a lot better than that. that is a lot but again, of dough. why do we consistently as an electorate consent to politicians bribing us with our own money, especially when we're already in the hole in a pretty big way. Yep. Linda. 
you know, I remember putting the deck clock in the lobby of the King Eddie and Paul Martin came, recall, Catherine? And, you know, they did put the blocks to it. But, Roy, you just said something earlier. We're so accustomed now to debt. Let's not forget that there are countries around the world now that are floating out debt as instruments to invest in. And certainly we saw that on Wall Street with the Goldman Sachs, the Wall Street players. They all made a ton of money floating out bad debt, and it almost sank the world economy. To me, there's a lesson to be learned. Um, and, you know, it, it, it really enrages me. I, I, uh, okay. yeah. Michelle, let me come back to, to, to your decision that you've made, because I'm seeing emails. People are curious. Um, and then we'll have one quick point on finance before the clock gets us. Uh, is that something you want to expand on, or do you want to get on to something else? Well, no. I, I, you know what? I had a horrible experience, and I've seen what Jody Wilson-Raybould has gone through, and I don't see any lessons being learned. And that's, it, it, that's why there is no way that I can vote for Justin Trudeau. Not only are no lessons being learned, Michelle, they're doubling down. Oh, yeah. Doubling You're down. You're right. Jody Wilson-Raybould is the offender here, not Trudeau and his henchmen and women. Mm, no, you're right. Um, okay, so back to, can I just go back to money for a second? Because I just thought of something that, that really, because, Catherine, you talk about recession, and I know I've heard as well uh, that, and you know far better than any of us, uh, with the possible exception of Linda uh, and Michelle, you know, far, in other words, you know a lot more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> what I've been reading is, and it's gotten my attention, is that, and these are American news stories, that there are significant numbers of people who work for major corporations whose salary, whose remuneration package includes stock options or stocks, period. They're selling like crazy. They're dumping their own company's stock. And that includes companies like Amazon and uh, and, and Facebook. They say they, they haven't seen numbers like this since before since 2007. Have you seen this? Have you seen these stories? Wow. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Well, it's kind of making me a little nervous. For a long time, and everybody's figuring, you know, the boom's going to fall pretty soon. Well, how far? How hard is it going to fall? Hard. I think it's going to fall pretty hard. (laughs) And the problem in Canada, not uniquely, again, Trump's been spending government money like mad too. By the way, and of course, we're hugely dependent on the U.S. So the fact that we're both both countries are indebted up to the eyeballs is a very bad omen for North America. Okay, so so if we take that scenario to the next step, then whoever's going to be governing this country and managing what money we have, last time we did pretty well, who knows what we'll do this time, um, is, it's pretty damn important who's going to be governing this country. It is. And, uh, you know, from what I've been reading about Morneau, um, there isn't a lot of confidence in him. That's well, the other thing. Okay. So I found it hilarious that Trudeau, that economic brainchild, <laughs> took over from him in a press conference. Thought, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if Trudeau doesn't trust him, that's pretty worrisome here. That's scary. 
But you know yeah. what, too, Roy? We can't look <laughs> at that last 90s experience for Canada as, a, as an example. Our economy in the 90s was on a tear. Uh, you know, in a way, yes, we was. were sort of perversely lucky that that was when Canada was in such deep trouble. And by yeah. the way, it happened from gov- previous. No, I was I was talking about two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We came out of that one reasonably well. We, compared yeah, to we the rest of the world, we came out of that one reasonably well, but we weren't in the soup as much exactly. as we are right now. Exactly. And yeah. it's not simply government, as Linda was talking about earlier. Personal debt is also at well, we're we're we have a record debt in the world Shoot. for consumer debt. I'm sorry, but you know how it goes. It's gone. We're getting We're the hook. The money's gone and the time's gone. <laughs> but we'll please come back. We'll, have, we'll do this again during the election campaign a couple of times, okay? Okay. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale, Catherine Swift. They're the beauties. I'm the other part of the equation. We'll be back in a minute. When the election rolls around, you vote on the record of the past four years. What you hear during the campaign is often uh, mostly public relations efforts to try to throw you off the trail. It's like, you know, uh, it's not a good metaphor, but if somebody's trying to get away from a tracking dog, they'll run along in the water because the dog has problems trying to follow your trail in the water. And so during election campaigns, that's my metaphor, they, uh, the parties will all, they'll all do it. They'll all do it. They'll all lay down phony sense or try to persuade you to go somewhere where you have no intention of going. Uh, I was going to say something. Oh, yeah. On the issue of SNC and uh, providing the information and lifting the restrictions on what Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, and Jane Philpott may say or not say about cabinet confidence, I spoke with Professor Donald Savoie earlier today, Canada Research Chair in Public Administration, and governess at the University of Moncton. He's the author of Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions. It publishes a week from today when we'll be actually speaking to the professor about the book. But I asked him today whether or not the prime minister is, is, the, is the person who makes the decision on, on lifting the, the, the restrictions on what the ministers can say or the former ministers can say, or is it the clerk of the Privy Council? And uh, Professor Savoie said... Without a question, there's no issue, there's no question here. It's the Prime Minister. The clerk of the Privy Council is just the custodian of the information. They're back. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, former um, CEO, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, seatmate to Justin Trudeau, prior to the 2015 election, and Linda Leatherdale, Vice President of Cambria, Canada, and she was the money editor for the Toronto Sun. Beauties and the Beast, well, how are you all three? Oh, wonderful, and hi, guys. Hi, guys. guys. Yes. Oh, okay, we're starting right away. Uh, I'll get blowback, but I don't care. I know you don't. Okay, let's start with you then. Catherine, hi. Hi, Roy. I didn't hear anything from Again? you. Again? Yeah, that's right. We had Long Catherine time. on. Uh, Catherine was on a, a little earlier with us on the uh, on the the housing uh, plan the Liberals put forward, and they kind of kind of kind of didn't work out too well. Um, Michelle, you, so you're the you're the former Liberal member of Parliament. You sat with Mr. Trudeau yeah. beside you during question period for a considerable period of time. And uh, you told us last weekend, and you've tweeted it at Michelle Simpson. You've tweeted it out that you will not vote liberal 
this time. Is that the first time? Uh, it would be. It, it would be, and I can't change that. And why? Um, because may I ask that? It, I'm, I'm, I may not have the right to ask you that. No. Um, I, I'm really distressed that the moral compass has gone out of the party, and it's, you know, been going for a while, but now, not a chance. Because it's only a two, as far as I'm concerned, why? It's a two-horse race. You know, I'm not putting down the Greens or the NDP, but in my view, it's uh, the Conservatives and the Liberals. So should I employ some deductive reasoning here as far as who you might be voting for? Well, I guess if it wasn't going to be the Liberals, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could sit on your hands, Michelle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you know what? I, I don't believe that you shouldn't vote. Yeah, I agree. And uh, sometimes you hold your nose and vote, but this time I don't have to do that. Well, that's quite a statement from, yeah. from you. That's quite a statement because you have a lifelong commitment as, as a liberal person. Oh, and, and I know. But you know what? If they are morally and ethically corrupt, I can't possibly support them. But you know what else, Michelle? And, and I mean, I've thought this for quite a while. I've, I've worked perfectly well with liberal governments in the past. Yeah. This, this, in my view, is not a liberal government, at least not the liberals that we Canadians sort of Knew. have known for decades, you yeah. know? This is an, a, a very narrowly ideologically driven group, quite an elitist group. I mean, as someone who represented small business for decades, yeah. in my case... There are very few people in this caucus that ever had any real business experience. Uh, you know, and, and these kinds of things, they're, they're, they're a very, um, it, it's a very different ke- kettle of fish than liberal parties I've known in the past. Yeah. Linda. Well, Roy, like you, I tend to go to the right. Um, and I've got to say, I've been listening to your show, and I agree with your listeners. If you were running, Roy, hands down, I'd be voting for you. Oh, no. That's yeah. very, very kind uh, of let's you. Let's just look at this. Andrew Shear, you know, he hires Jimmy Valance, who's Brian Adams' songwriter, as you know, with a new little jingle, It's Time for You to Get Ahead. Well, Roy, like a lot of your listeners, I'm a little bit cynical. My jingle would have been Promises, Promises. I'm so sick of broken promises. Because when I sit here and I look, the net debt of Canada sits at $1.8 trillion. Let me remind you all, it was $700 billion back in 2014, and this is under every, well, probably liberals and conservatives. Tax yeah. Freedom Day still falls on June 14th, meaning we work for half of the year to pay our taxes. Nothing has changed there. We still deal with the highest cell phones and Internet costs. We're nickel and dimed to death by banks. And record household debt, Roy. We've talked about this on your show for years and years. $1.77 trillion. For every dollar in disposable income, we owe $1.77. And Canadians are using 15% of their income just to service this debt. So I ask, what has changed? And I, and I heard your message earlier today. You know, how can we trust any of them to keep promises? So 
I believe there could be a shift here. We might see a fragmentation of the vote. Um, and i got to say, when we did some research and I shared it with you, 88% of Canadians, I can't believe this. I know, Catherine, <laughs> it kills you too, support a carbon tax. Well, I don't believe that that is the answer. But even in Doug Ford's riding, 62% support an emission, emission trading. So on the... Minds of our young. I'd like to see the. I'd like to see those questions. Yeah, Yeah, but on our mind, climate change is a concern for them. This is their future too. So, I don't know. This is a tough one. This is a tough. Do you know what, Catherine? I uh, thank you, Linda, uh, Michelle. I had a call from uh, I think it was Sherry, in Fort McMurray, just before we we started, and she made such a wonderful point, and that was governments spend money. They need money. They have to get money, access money, in order to spend money in order to buy us, ultimately. And if we're not developing our natural resources, our energy, um, uh, and and our opportunities in the energy sector, then where's the money going to come from? It'll come from taxes. And and, and it was, she she said it so much better than I can say it, but it was was so point on, and particularly from a caller from from Fort McMurray. But she's not wrong about the taxes thing. Yeah, but frankly, she's right on. When when business sectors like the resource sector and others that they depend on, because let's not fool a lot, a lot of people think, oh, that's Alberta's problem. Oh no no no, that's Canada's problem. I know tons of manufacturers in Ontario who are very interlinked with the uh, energy you know sector in, in Alberta and elsewhere in the country and so on. So no one is exempt from this. But who do you who do you think pays taxes, folks? Businesses and the people they employ. Let me ask you this question. If you kill a big sector like energy in Canada, you're killing our economy. Before we take the break, let me ask you this question and go back to what Linda raised. And what did you say, uh, Linda? One point, how many trillion, one point, whatever it is, trillion in consumer debt? 1.77 trillion, and that includes mortgages and credit cards, personal debt. Okay, so... Do you think that given that reality, and it's been, it, this didn't happen overnight, it's been growing, it's been, it's just been growing and growing and growing, and governments have been growing and growing debt, particularly this one, uh, and the Ontario government, $313 billion of debt before the last election. Do you think we've just gotten so comfortable with the idea of debt that it doesn't even register anymore with, uh, with, 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 with people in this country, regardless of the sector, other than maybe small business? I think that's the case, that, you know, people have become accustomed to living with debt, whether it be government, whether it be their own, as, you know, I I really, really, it distresses me. But that's also possible because interest rates are at historically low levels. That's the debt that people are currently barely managing suddenly becomes completely unmanageable with a slight increase in interest rates. If people think that's never going to happen, they're dreaming in technicolor. Remember the Ipsos poll of a few months ago? More than half the population, and I was speaking with Sean Simpson of Ipsos about this earlier today, more than half the population says they're $200 away from bankruptcy. Yep. Yep. Wow. Really? And that doesn't take much of a change to suddenly tip tip people right into that, you know, abyss. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk more with the beauties, Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson, Beauties and the Beast on the election issue this first week of the campaign. Back on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Email is roy at roygreenshow.com. Twitter is at the Roy Green Show. Follow me there. And, uh, and... 
I got it. I got it. I can see it. Don't. Okay, I've got it. Please, everybody in the studio, I can see it. Stop. Got so many voices talking to me at the same time. And I'm trying to talk to you. And it's interesting when you have two voices talking to you in your headphones, and I'm trying to talk to you. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> everything's under control. The RCMP Intel director criminally charged in a major case, huge case, civilian RCMP member with access to the most confidential files. And it was the Americans who alerted Canada to deep concerns about the activities of Cameron Ortis, who appears to have perhaps been prepared to pass on uh, hugely confidential information to, um, to who we don't know. I mean, there's so many questions that uh, remain unanswered. Mercedes Stevenson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, Global News Parliamentary Bureau Chief and host of the West Block on Global Television. Mercedes, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me, Roy. So uh, can you put this into context for us? You tweeted, for years sources have told me they believed there was a mole in the national security establishment and specifically the RCMP. Today, sources are wondering if they found the person. Wow. It's been going on for a long time. It has. And um, I can tell you, as for that tweet, I'd been hearing for years that there was suspicions based on information that was actually being picked up in other agencies' intelligence, where they would see highly classified information that was Canadian analytical information and wonder how on earth the adversary had gotten that. Now, that's that said, our adversaries spy on us. So the, the, the question was there, though, in some of my sources' minds for years, how was this information getting out? Um, and at other times, they thought they found it in criminal capacities. Now, that said, I can't match whatever information they were seeing there to what the allegations are about what Ortiz supposedly was leaking, what, what the RCMP believe he was trying to leak, trying to sell. Um, but I heard from a number of sources yesterday who said, wondering if this is the explanation. And we don't know the answer to that yet, but what we do know is that the charges he is facing are extraordinarily serious, that this is somebody who had access to the most sensitive files in the government. The level of security clearance he had is so high that when they came in to seize the documents that he had taken out of the office to where he was living, um, the investigators looked at it and realized they were not even allowed to see them. That's how sensitive they that were. That is staggering. Uh, it, it is staggering. I mean, you think these are these are other police and other intelligence agencies coming in, and they go, you know, we can't even look at this. They had to package it up so it could be dealt with by specialists. Um, if you've seen Mission Impossible, you remember what they called the knock list. Yes. The knock list is all of the undercover agents. Yep. He had access to the knock list for Canada. That, that's, you know, a, a kind of pop culture term, but it is uh, the undercover RCMP and intelligence agents who are operating in Canada and abroad. You can imagine the level of concern right now, and I am hearing from people in that community wondering if they have been compromised, and they don't know. So there's a sort of this question still that we don't know how serious the implications are. We know what he had access to, which was absolutely everything, the most sensitive passwords, code words, wow. you name it, he had it. Uh, the question now is, what was transferred, if anything was transferred, and where did it go, and how do you respond? And that's where kind of the panic is right now in the national security establishment as they try to track all this down and follow the breadcrumbs. And Canada was alerted by the Americans. Not the first time that's happened. 
No, in fact, it happened with uh, Jeffrey Delisle, who was uh, a military intelligence analyst who was caught selling secrets to the Russians. He had financial problems. He was trying to make money that way. Um, Aaron Driver, if you remember the wannabe suicide bomber, a, who would, he was uh, radicalized into ISIS. He did strap explosives to his body. He was stopped by the RCMP as he was trying to leave his driveway, and he tried to detonate himself. Uh, that one was an FBI analyst who saw a video and realized this guy was in Canada and sent it up to the Canadians. And this is something that's been flagged to me um, by the former head of counterintelligence at CSIS, who I was talking to last night, and he said, we have such a huge problem with insider threats. It, it really, not that they're broad and everywhere, but this just shows how hard it is to track them down. And we don't have the resources to do this kind of intelligence and monitoring of our own stuff. People think about terrorism. They think about Russia. They think about China. They don't always think about the people who are Canadian working inside the establishment yeah. who might be selling information or giving it away by, based on either ideological or financial or personality motivation. And it's likely he had access to more than just Canadian information. There would have been overlap. That's right, and that's where there's concern as well. And it's interesting because on this story, I've, I've been seeing journalists from the United States, from Australia, from New Zealand, and from the UK picking it up. And that's because uh, he had access to highly sensitive Five Eyes intelligence. Five Eyes are the, the five countries that work together on intelligence, like the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, and they share critical information. And as the you know director of national intelligence, he would see all of that analysis. And you can imagine how useful that analysis might be to criminal organizations, to foreign actors, to certain groups. Um, that, that is information that is extremely sensitive and being shared because people trust. So there's certainly concern over what might have been compromised among our allies. The only counterpoint I put to that is that I have sources in other countries who have told me this is part of a larger international operation that's going on. And that there are concerns, there are moles in other countries uh, in the same situation in the sense that they, they are nationals of that country working in the national security establishment. Um, but what's unique about this case is how high up this person was. This was not a junior analyst sneaking stuff off his computer. Um, this would be someone to be access, able to access pretty much anything and not raise questions. Because, of course, if you're the director, you would have access. It wouldn't be as strange as if it was a junior analyst asking to have a look at, you know, some document that was outside their purview. I think we're just starting to understand how stunning this is. It's, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around. And I can tell you yeah. the last place I thought I'd be dealing with this is on Justin Trudeau's campaign bus in rural Quebec yesterday um, when it started to break. And it really is astounding when you think about the magnitude. And the biggest question right now is that, we just don't know everything he he may have tried to pass. I, I know he had, quote-unquote, terabytes, uh, which is an awful lot of information at his disposal. The most highly sensitive and classified information in the government was found in his possession that he should not have had outside of the office. Um, and I can tell you that we're going to have a little bit more tonight on Global National about who he tried to sell to. Okay. Uh, because I've identified one of those entities, and we're being very careful what we say because they're they're are active investigations going on right, right now, right. but um, I can identify a little bit for you about the nature of what he was trying to sell and the kind of people he was trying to sell it to. Well, we'll look for that on uh, Global National tonight. Mercedes, thank you very much for joining us now. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for uh, Global News. So watch Global National tonight. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 